Good morning, God's wonderful people. We're here this morning again once more to look into the Word of God and to declare His truth. Truth, my friends, is the very basis of life. And truth is that one measure that you must live by. Because that is how you experience the realities of life, through truth. If you are not embracing truth, if you are not standing on truth, then nothing that you do will be sure. Let us take today and make it a day that we live truth, speak truth, and be truth. Let today be another day of truth. Another day in which we declare God by the things we speak and the things we say, the things we do. So that in the end, our God can be glorified as the one true God. There is no God like Him. There is no one like Him. There can be none like Him. He's the only one who can stand forth as God. He has no equally, has no opposite. And that is the truth. We have been going through Galatians chapter 5 and we've been studying this text in detail and doing an in-depth study of this text. And from time to time, we have to go back and make sure that we understand the path that we are on. We have to every now and then make a check to ensure that we're on the correct path and to be on the same page because from time to time the deeper you go sometimes you lose track as to your direction because sometimes you get sidetracked you go off on a tangent and sometimes you just have to recollect yourself and ensure that you're on the right path and on the right track so to give you an understanding or a, a bit of a review as to where we are so far in our studies Let's do a bit of a recap. In this book of Galatians, we are looking at chapter 5. And Galatians is a book that was written by Paul to counter the heresies and lies that had crept into the church and was threatening the faith of the Galatian believers. The book, like we have said, you know, breaks the pattern of the way Paul normally writes his epistles. Because the way Paul normally writes his epistles, all the other epistles of Paul have two sections. And we have a narrative, which is referred to as the doctrinal section. And then we have the application, which we refer to as the, you know, the experience section of his epistles. So he normally presents a doctrinal portion and a practical portion of his book. So that's two parts he always presents. All right, so the two parts is supposed to normally present is a doctrinal section and a practical section, section that deals with experiences and shows you how to live out the doctrines he teaches. But in Galatians, we find that he breaks this pattern and he has three sections in this book instead of two. And the one section he adds is the first part, he adds a personal narrative in a personal narrative about his journey in, in taking the gospel to the world and about his experience. So he gives a personal narrative and then he goes into a doctrinal argument and then in the third section he goes into the practical application of the doctrines he declares. As it relates to the book of Galatians, the three parts, we can look at them as one, the personal narrative, we can look at it as, as the authenticity of the gospel. 
and the second section, the superiority of the gospel, which is a doctrinal section, and in the practical section that we can call that the true liberty of the gospel. This, my friends, I light for us or I light to us that what Paul was actually presenting and defending was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reading the book, this book of Galatians in a personal narrative, it may come across to you as though Paul is defending himself. But when you think about it and you go through, you realize that Paul is not defending himself. He's defending the gospel. That is what he was defending. You see, Galatians is about the gospel message. It's about the gospel itself. It's the power of the gospel. It's superiority. It's the authenticity of the gospel that he talks about. And he also talks about the liberty of the gospel. This is zeroed in in chapter 5. Because he starts off by saying... Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with Christ has made you free. Mm. So we see here, he's declaring the liberty of the gospel. So Paul takes a time out to, to educate these believers in Galatians, in Galatia, about the gospel that was preached to them and how powerful it is. In this particular chapter of chapter 5, we see several things being borne out in this chapter. But the, the, the all-encompassing all and, and, and what I would call the, 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 the ruling principle that governs this chapter and that you know, brings forth the truth of this chapter is, is, is how this particular chapter is broken down and how it's structured. We, we identify the structure of this chapter by looking at what is called indicative imperative structured statement that Paul uses in this chapter. Now, this is not something new to Paul's um, speeches, to Paul's writings, because throughout his other epistles, we'll see the same, the same pattern being used, the indicative imperative pattern or the indicative imperative structure being used in his other writings as well. Now, what this means is that this indicative imperative structure is simply the indicative is a statement that declares what God has already done and the imperative is what we must do because you know the imperative is 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 really a statement of, of a command and the indicative is basically the, the statement of of declaration right so that is basically what these this structured statement will declare. It will, be, it will be a statement that tells you something, declares something, declares a truth, declares a fact. And the second part of that statement will give a command. So that's the sort of a structured statement that Paul used in this book. And as we follow this, this structured sentence, these structured sentences, it will unveil and reveal to us the, the, the pattern or the structure of this chapter. So it will tell us what God has done and then it will tell us, you know, um, you know, the, 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 what we should do, the command. So what God has done gives us the opportunity and power to do what we must do. That's what these structured statements would have declared. So that would, this, the, the, these statements would provide for us the structure of this chapter. Now we find this first, the first one in verse 1, where Paul says, Stand fast. Therefore, in the liberty with Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That is God's gift of freedom. It must be defended. That's what Paul was defending, the, the gospel. 
So he's declaring to the Galatians, stand fast, stand up for what you have received, this liberty that you have received, stand up in that liberty and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So here, the indicative statement is, is that Christ hath made us free. Christ hath made us free. And so what we also see is that the imperative statement that Paul gives, he gives it in two parts. He gives a negative imperative and also a positive imperative. So he says, first, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. So he says, stand firm in your liberty. So that is the positive imperative. And then we see him giving us the negative imperative where it says, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Be not entangled with the yoke of bondage. And then stand fast in your liberty. So those are the two imperatives that Paul would have given here. But remember, the declarative statement here, the, the, the indicative statement here is that Christ hath made us free. The second one is found in verse 13. And in verse 13, Paul says, For brethren, he have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So here we see him giving the indicative statement first. And he says here, for brethren, he have been called unto liberty. You have been called unto liberty. One Christ hath made you free. The second year says you have been called to liberty. Now my friends, being free also means you have been called to live out that liberty. And that's what Paul is declaring here. You have been called unto liberty. Live in the freedom of the liberty of the gospel. And so he says now the imperative he gives here is one. It's a negative one coming first. He says, use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Then comes a positive one. By love, serve one another. That's the positive imperative. By love, serve one another. Do not use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Don't give occasion to your flesh, the desires of your flesh. But instead, by love, serve one another. The third one is given in verse 25 and verse 26. Here it reads. In verse 25, it says, If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Here we see Paul giving us the indicative first. He says, if we live in the spirit, what he's declaring here, my friends, is that we live, we must live in the spirit and we are living in the spirit. So it says, if you are living in the spirit, then you must also walk in the spirit. So the positive imperative here is let us walk in the spirit. And the negative one is, let us not be desirous of vain glory. So there we have the third indicative imperative pattern given. In this chapter, Paul outlines a few things for us. So let us look briefly at what Paul outlines in chapter 5. First, we list four inevitable negative consequences. That's the first thing he lists for us. Four negative consequences. 
of adding such a supplement to the faith in Christ. You see, what others were coming into the churches Paul had established, they were coming into the church and they were telling these believers that in order for you to reap the fullness of salvation, you must come to living the principles and abiding by the laws of the Jewish tradition, the Juda of Judaism. That is how you would reap the full benefits of salvation. So they were not telling them don't believe in Jesus. They were not telling them don't accept Jesus. These were Jewish Christians who were coming to these churches trying to establish to them that for you to experience the fullness of God's salvation, you must now incorporate the Jewish laws into your beliefs. And into your operations. And so experience the fullness of salvation. That's what they were telling these believers. So Paul here is giving us five or, or rather four negative consequences of accepting this teaching. So he says first in Galatians 5 to Christ will be of no value to you at all. If you accept this teaching, Paul says, behold, I Paul say unto you that if he be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. The second consequence here he gives, he said, the consequence of getting circumcision is the obligation to obey the whole law. So once you accept this teaching that you're going to abide by the laws of the Judaism, then it is, it's declaring here that once you take on that, you are obligated to obey the whole law. So in verse 2, he says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that is a debtor to do the whole law. You'll be alienated from Christ if you accept this teaching. Verse 4, he says, Christ is become Christ. Sorry. He says, You'll be a. Sorry. Let's go to this again. The third one is, You'll be alienated from Christ. In verse 4, this is what he says in verse 4. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are. You see, you are justified by the law. You see, um, ye are fallen from grace. If you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So that's why Paul declares here, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So you'll be alienated from Christ if you accept this teaching and begin to live by this teaching that you must abide by the teachings of Judaism and the laws of Judaism for you to experience the fullness of salvation. Now these believers who were doing this, they were professing Christians. They accepted Christ. But they believe that if you're going to live the fullness of the gospel, you must receive Christ and, and also the teachings and laws of Judaism must be obeyed. There are persons doing the same thing today. There is still a sex going around doing it today. I haven't changed. Galatians is a classic response to such legalistic teaching. Also, this verse here tells us that you are the, the fourth neg um, negative consequence. It says you are falling away from grace. Not only are you alienated from Christ. Christ has become of no effect unto you. So you are alienated from Christ. But also you are falling from grace. So one, Christ will be of no value to you. Two, you will have to obey the old law. Three, you'll be alienated from Christ. And four, you are fallen from grace. Those are the four negative consequences of adding such supplement to faith in Christ. The next thing Paul gives us in this chapter is that Paul then gives us a positive description of maintaining our freedom in Christ. Faith in Christ is the only way to protect your freedom. 
in Christ. He then gives us four descriptions of what this life of faith looks like. He says, the life of faith is a life by the Spirit. Verse 5, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit our hope of righteousness. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit our, our hope. Now, that's the first thing. That the life of faith is lived by the Spirit. Is by the Spirit. The life of faith is a life of confidence. Confident expectation of righteousness. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Then, the next thing here we learn from this is that in this life of faith, what matters is union with Christ, not union with the Jews or, 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 or not union with, with, with the Jews or Gentiles or any other racial or social group. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That's what's declared in verse 6. The fourth one, my friend, is that our life of faith is a life of loving one another. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He then turned his attention to exposing the false teachers. In verse 7 to 12, he exposed these false teachers by showing us how to identify them. How do you identify false teachers? What are the marks that we can use to guide us in discerning the presence of wolves in sheep clothing in our midst today? One, false teachers distract Christians from obeying the truth of the gospel. They distract Christians from obeying the truth of the gospel. Here's what Paul says in verse, verse 7 of chapter 5. He did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So they distract Christians. They distract you from obeying the truth of the gospel by presenting to you something totally different that sounds good and looks good. False teachers replace the call of God with their own deceptive persuasiveness. So they are very persuasive. And they replace the call of God with their own deceptive persuasiveness. This persuasion, Paul declares in verse 8, cometh not of him that calleth you. And the third thing that we can use to identify false teachers is that false teachers gain control over the whole church. Mm, spirit of witchcraft in operation. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. They, they seek to gain control over the whole church. And in many respects, they do. In many respects, these false teachers do gain control over the old church. That is how you see the mark of a false teacher. They will always seek to gain control over the entire church. That's one of their marks. False teachers cause confusion and discouragement. Verse 10 says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that he will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he may be. The thing is, my friends, these false teachers always cause confusion and discouragement. When they begin to speak, they sow seeds of discord and seeds of discouragement and seeds of confusion. Some these false teachers, when they speak to you, their teaching sound right, but it creates confusion in your mind because it's going against the core of what your conscience is telling you. 
so it creates confusion. False teachers spread false report about spiritual leaders. They go about spreading false report about spiritual leaders. Anytime you see somebody knocking another spiritual leader, be sure that that person is treading a false teacher's pathway. Because false teachers are the ones who will always try to tear down somebody. If a speaker or a preacher spends his time tearing down other preacher, be sure and be assured that's not a preacher from God. Because the Bible says, the accuser of the brethren is the devil. So every accuser of God's people is an instrument of the devil. So once you're accusing God's people, you're an instrument of the devil's camp. That's a false teacher. The sixth thing that Paul declares here about how to identify false teachers is that false teachers emphasize sensational rituals. Mm. They emphasize sensational rituals. Verse 12, Paul says, I would, I would, they were even cut off which trouble you. In other words, they were sensationalizing this, the circumcision covenant that God had with Israel. They sensationalize it, emphasizing it, telling you that if you don't do this, you will not experience the fullness of the gospel's message and the fullness of salvation. You must be circumcised and live as a Jew. So Paul says, this is how you identify them. They sensationalize rituals. They emphasize sensational rituals. You see, in the latter part here, Paul then gives us an ethical appeal. This is a section that contains the focus of our study, which we are looking at and we're diving into. Now, this section in chapters and which is from verse 13 to chapter 6 verse 10 that entire section is what we're looking to but we extract out just a part of that because that latter part deals with just basically practical explanation of the third imperative indicative imperative statement given there but the second one is the one which is our focus and we we will wrap up our study looking at the third imperative indicative imperative um statement but we'll wrap it up in just maybe not as detailed a look as we do the second one. Because the second one is what contains the crux of what we want to declare and what we intend to show forth. And the title here of our study is Battle Engagement. What we're looking at is the battle that we are engaging in. And the battle we're engaging in is one where the, the very... The, the very truth we're standing on is that we don't have to fight every single battle to win this war we just focus on the key battle and the key battle here we have identified is in this section of the second indicative imperative statement where paul declares that in verse 16 that's the crux of it this i say then walk in the spirit and he shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that he cannot do the things that he would. But if we are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. So what we have identified is that this section literally shows forth or detail and, and explain this second imperative. If we walk in the spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, Paul is telling us, if you walk in the spirit, you will have walked in your victory, perpetual victory, by walking in the spirit. 
you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the battle that we're waging with is the battle between our flesh and our spirit. You'll win this war by walking in the spirit. This one battle determines this war. And many times we hear about war and these wars are determined by winning one battle. This one battle we must win is a battle between our flesh and our spirit. And we win this battle by walking in the spirit. And what we did, we look, we have looked at the, the works of the flesh and we went through all of those works of the flesh, each of them, and we go into them in detail, understanding each and what they means, what they mean, sorry. <laughs> and then we turn our attention to looking at the, the, the fruit of the spirit. And we have this, we have determined by our study, through our study, that the fruit of the spirit is one. That's why it says the fruit of the spirit, not fruits. It lists nine things here, but it says the fruit of the Spirit is. If Paul was giving us the multiple fruits of the Spirit, he would have said the fruits of the Spirit are. But instead, he gives it in a singular form. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And this now correlates to the positive imperative by love serve one another. The negative imperative is covered by the works of the flesh, that first part of our study that says, do not give occasion to the flesh. Do not give occasion to the flesh. Use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. So that's the negative imperative which correlates to the works of the flesh. That's giving occasion to the flesh if you follow those that we have looked at under the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is one. It's love. By love serve one another. So therefore, these that we're going through, these nine things that we're going through, they are manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. So joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, these are all manifestations of love. And we have looked at love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. Now next episode, we'll begin our look on meekness. And then we'll consider temperance. These are the last two in the in manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit I will be looking at. And so I implore you, don't miss another one. Because this study is getting more and more you know, rich. It's getting deeper and deeper. Because the more we go into it, the more we're seeing, the more we're flushing out. And note, my friends, that this study is live. It's not something I'm regurgitating from what I've studied years ago. We're doing this study live. It's happening as we go on. We are going through the study day by day. That is why sometimes you'll find that, you know, some are longer than some because there are times we have to dig deeper to extract the truth. So some of these episodes tend to be longer than others. Nonetheless, my friends, this is just basically to get you back on track as to where we are, to give you an understanding as to what we're doing. Because if you catch our episodes in the middle, you may not understand where we're coming from. And because I don't go through this detail in each of the episodes, from time to time, I'll take time out to go over and recap what we have done so far and where we're going and where we're at. These studies, my friends, are not for the faint of heart. But if you are desirous of learning the truth of God's word, if you are desirous of journeying to the depth of God's word, then these are the studies that will introduce you to such concept. You'll hear things in these study that is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for those who are interested in just reading the Bible. It is for those who are willing to go deeper into the word. And there are times, my friend, when going to the depths will take longer 
than other times. If you want to make a quick jump into the word and a quick extraction from the word, it's not for this. This is not for that kind of a mentality. You must be willing to go into the word, to get into it, and to spend some time there. So the idea behind these studies is to whet your appetite, to go deeper into the word of God, because the word of God is living. It is living and it's active. Get wrapped up with it. Get intimate with the word of God. It's time for us to begin to intertwine our minds and our faculties and our intellect with the word so that the word can get into us and begin to change us from the inside so that when people see us, they begin to see the mark of a man transformed by the word of God. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today, God, for your wisdom that has been availed to us for us to learn the truth of your word. Your spirit, O oh God, which makes things clear. Your spirit will reveal, who unveils the truth of your word. We thank you for your spirit's presence and your spirit's actions and activities in our lives. We give you thanks, O oh God, because he's the one who revealed truth and we thank you for him today. We ask you, Lord, to help us to keep ourselves and our minds and hearts humbled in your presence so that we can receive more and more of your word. Let our hearts not become weary in going deeper. But let our minds and heart be open to receiving the truth of your word in all its glory and its all its form. Thank you, Father, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day now, my friends. And do remember that God loves you and I do too.